This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. We'll take your Bibles once again and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We came to the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 3 last week. And this morning we'll be looking at Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 13. Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 13. Can I just say as I'm looking over the crowd, I'm so thankful to see so many of you back. Last Sunday and this Sunday, I saw so many who have coming back after a long absence. And just every week, more and more people are coming back. We're just so thankful you're here. And these are exciting days at Prince. God is doing good things. And we're thankful that you're here to be a part of it. Whether you're a member or a guest, we're really glad that you're here today. My father pastored a local church for over 30 years, much like I am now, uh, in multiple different locations pastor to local church. He was a great, effective pastor. He was a little bit unusual as a pastor. His giftings were a little bit distinct. Most pastors gifted, I think like I am, to shepherd and uh, to kind of consistently preach and uh, to see change happen over long periods of time, really to engage in the process of sanctification in people's life, all of those things that I love and feel God has gifted me for. My dad was really a gifted, and I think a more biblical word to say, is an anointed evangelist. When my dad preached, people got saved. In every church he was ever in, we just saw thousands of people come to Christ. As a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, someone came to me and said they were reading an article, and the article was referencing my dad in the early 80s, that there were two years in which my dad and his church in Oklahoma City saw 2,000 people baptized two years in a row. Uh, which is an incredible thing. And uh, just everywhere he went, he just preached and people got saved. It was, I think, because of that, that later on in his ministry, after a little over 30 years, he decided to transition into full-time evangelistic ministry. This was a massive step of faith because he was leaving a church where he had a guaranteed salary and all of those things and basically said, I'm just going to step out and if people invite me, I'm going to go and preach. And what do they give me? I'm going to take. And God blessed him. And he did that for over 30 more years, just traveling across the country. Normally, in my growing up years, traveling between 280 and 300 days a year, traveling and preaching in local churches. Throughout all of that, he really kind of focused his ministry in one specific area. He really believed that his calling was to lost church members. Now, I don't know exactly how all of that formed. I wish he was still around and I could ask him this question But I do know one major influence in his life was the ministry of Billy Graham. In 1983, Billy Graham came to do a crusade in Oklahoma City where my dad was pastoring. And my dad, just on a whim, decided to ask the Billy Graham Association if on Sunday morning, before the crusade started Sunday night, Billy Graham would come preach in our church. Well, he never did that, but for some reason he agreed to do it. And so on Sunday morning, that morning, I was there. My Billy Graham came to preach at our church. And before that service, my dad had a conversation with him that really formed the rest of his ministry. He asked Billy Graham, he said, why is it that every time you preach, I hear you reference lost church members? Billy Graham said, well, you're right. Either it's either the theme of my sermon or sometime in the invitation, I'm talking about lost church members. He said, there's two reasons. He said, number one, I was a lost church member. 
For many years, I was a church member but did not have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until many years of being a member of a church, I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, the second reason is this. He said, I believe the greatest mission field in the world is not the foreign mission field or the home mission field, but the mission field of the local church. Billy Graham was convinced that the American church was filled with members who did not have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our text this morning from Hebrews 4 is to lost people. We have to be careful in saying that because it is specifically written to unbelievers who most likely think that they're believers. In other words, this text is written to lost church members. This entire book of Hebrews is written to a church, a local church, and the author of Hebrews knows what I know, uh, knew what I know this morning, and that is what I'm seeing here today is the visible church, meaning all of us have gathered together and we've come to church, most of you members of our church, but only God knows the real church, those who are really born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have chosen by faith to trust and follow Jesus Christ. Only the Lord knows that. So every week I get up and preach to the visible church, knowing that within this room there are believers and unbelievers. Every week we have people who come and they know they're unbelievers and they choose to come here because the Lord is working in their lives. But every week we also have people in this room that are unbelievers that might think they're believers. And so it is, the author of the book of Hebrews is very concerned about that group of people. And he knows that in this church, they have heard the truth. They have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But persecution is arising and pressure is rising. And he's afraid that many who made a profession of faith might not have authentic faith. And if so, as a result, they're not going to last very long. In some ways, they're going to fall away. And so he writes this to this group of people. And one of the ways in which he continues to speak to this group of people is through an illustration from the Old Testament. Most of the book of Hebrews is written as an illustration of the Exodus generation, the generation that Moses led. You can read about them in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's a generation that were enslaved in Egypt, but God miraculously delivered them out through the leadership of Moses. He brought them out uh, and said to them, I'm going to give you the law, and then I'm going to lead you into the promised land. His desire was never just to get them out of Egypt, but to get them into the land. And so here they are on the edge of the Jordan River. The promised land is right on the other side, and the Lord already said this, it's yours. You're going to get the promised land. All you have to do is trust me and walk by faith. But Numbers 14 tells us that they refused to do it. They sent, remember these 12 spies they sent into the land and two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, listen, there's big people over there. They got lots of weapons. There's lots of walls. But God said we can take it. So we believe we can take it. Let's go for it. But the other 10 spies said, no, 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 no. They're too big. They're too strong. We can never do it. And those 10 spies who did not believe in the promise of God caused the entire generation to miss the promised land. So instead of receiving the promised land, they wandered in the wilderness until that entire generation, but Joshua and Caleb died. This is an illustration in which he wants us to see there are a lot of people who start well. There are a lot of people who are a part of the people of God. And there are a lot of those people that do not make it until the end. 
And the reason is in one little word. It's the last word of chapter three. We looked at it last week. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Look at that last verse of Hebrews 3. So we see that they, this Exodus generation, were unable to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. That is an extremely important word. They knew the promises. They heard the promises. They heard, just like you're hearing this morning, the good news that it is possible for you to be saved and to enter into the eternal rest of God, to experience him now and to experience him for all of eternity. They heard the same gospel that you're hearing today, but they didn't believe. This is important because it begins to give us an idea of the nature of true belief, which really is the theme of this passage. You see, belief has to be more than just mental assent to the truth of God. It has to be more than that. Satan has that. He knows that Jesus died. He knows that Jesus rose. He saw the whole thing. So it has to be more than just knowing what Jesus did. Because this generation knew the promises. The difference was this. This generation failed to act on the promises. So it helps us to know that faith is not simply an understanding of what God did. True saving faith believes in the promises of God and shows evidence of that belief by walking by faith in the promises of God. This is exactly what they failed to do. So what chapter three says to us is this, don't be like them. And chapter four continues this plea to say, listen, here's a generation that knew everything. They saw tons of stuff, but they didn't get heaven because they didn't believe. And unbelief looked like a failure to step out and walk by faith in the promises of God. So let's listen to what it says here in Hebrews 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. If you're looking there, say amen. It says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Let me just pause right there for a minute. Moses' generation did not receive the promise because they didn't go into the promised land. They didn't get the rest of God. Joshua's generation did. Joshua believed and he led the people of God. 
And through all kinds of battles, God continued to give them victory. They believed in the promise of God and acted on it, therefore received the promised land. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. There's got to be more to rest than that. That wasn't the end of the story. No, there still remains a rest for us beyond the promised land. He says this, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Even today, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now the key word in that text is the word rest. It's used 10 times throughout the text. And there are two divisions in this. There is verses one through five and then six through 13. And both of those divisions are marked by one key sentence, one in verse one and one in verse 11. So there's gonna be three words that are very similar in verse one and verse 11 that are gonna help us to understand this text. Verse one, it says this, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, here's three key words, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive, so let us fear, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So both verses are telling us that it's possible, like that Exodus generation, for you to hear the good news, to know the good news, to be able to quote the good news, and yet miss eternity with God. It is possible for you to be able to tell the story of the gospel and not have saving faith. And because that's a possibility, it says this, let us fear and let us strive. So this is an exhortation. We talked about this last week. All of Hebrews is an exhortation. An exhortation comes in one of two ways, a warning or an encouragement. You've got both right here. You start in verses one through five with a warning. Be afraid of unbelief. Be afraid, it's possible. Many in the church are gonna know the good news and yet have unbelief. And then the encouragement, let us strive. Keep holding on to Jesus, walk by faith. So let's look at how both of those work together as we try to understand how it is we enter the rest of God. The first thing is this. Be afraid of missing God's rest. That's verses one through five. Be afraid of missing God's rest. So this is a very strong warning. Talking about the rest of God. So, so what is the rest of God? Well, if you were to read all of the verses about the rest of God in scripture, you would find that it means one of two things and actually means both of these things, but used in different ways at different times in scripture. Part of the rest of God is a future reality. It is that day we look forward to when we have symbolically crossed the Jordan River, we have died and we enter into the rest of God. And so in that moment for true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no more anxious toil, there is no more worry, there is no more fret. All of the struggle with sin and temptation is over with 
And in that moment, we receive the fullness of every promise of God. And our greatest moment on earth is just a taste of the glory that awaits us on the other side of death. Which is the reason that believers don't fear death. Because for a believer, death is just the entrance into a better life. All the better stuff comes on the other side of death. All the fullness of the promises come on the, better, the other side of death. The fullness of joy on the other side of death. That's when real life begins for a believer. The truth is, is that is a rest that God has promised us. And the longer I live and the more I live where we live, the more I am ready for the rest of God. Amen? That is a wonderful promise. But there's also not only just a future reality, but a present reality. So this is the way it works with everything in the Christian life. Get this, okay? So the Lord says, come to me and I'll give you life. And what we know is that the fullness of life is after death. But as a believer, as we learn to follow Jesus every day, we just get a little taste of, of life. God gives us in this life little tastes of the fullness of that which we're going to experience in eternity. And so it is with rest. When we come into fellowship with God, when we come to know God and enjoy God, we start to see the, the end of all of our self-effort, the end of our anxiety and our worry. Because the truth is, is that when we come to trust the Lord, we no longer have fear and we no longer have anxiety and moment by moment walking with God, we just get some little moments in which we learn what it's like to experience his rest. I think that's the point of Psalm 4610, which says, be still and know that I am God. Meaning this, when there's all this chaos around you, when your life and the world seems chaotic, just stop and know that God is sovereign over your life and sovereign over the nations. And as you for a moment stop and turn your eyes to the Lord, what happens is this, by God's grace, you get a little taste of the rest of God. And so God has this fullness of rest that he's going to give us someday, but taste of that rest right now as we walk with Jesus. And both of those rests are found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So write down, if you're taking notes, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. This is where Jesus says this. Come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're weighed down by sin, come to me and take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly, meaning he is kind, listen, and accessible. We'll talk about this more next week. Jesus is kind and he's accessible. We can come to him. But here's what we know from that text. That Jesus gives an invitation for us to find rest in him, which absolutely believe it means an eternal rest in heaven. But he says this, come, take my yoke upon you, meaning we submit to the lordship of Jesus, which is a freeing submission. And then he says, learn from me. What does that mean? Well, it means when we come to Jesus, we not only get the promise of something future, we get the promise of something present. As you learn from me, as you walk with me, you know what happens? I give you some little taste of my rest. You learn how to rest in this present world. The good news of the gospel is not just good news for after death. It's good news for today. Because your life is hard and it's stressful. And you've got giants that need to fall and mountains that need to crumble. And in the midst of all of that, there is this refuge that is found today in Jesus Christ. 
when you come to know his rest as you walk with him. And the good news in verse one is this, the promise of that rest, look at this, I love these two words, still stands. There's still the promise this morning for the rest of God. And throughout these verses, he he kind of traces this promise. In verse five, he takes us back to creation, verses four and five, and says God rested from his work, not because he was tired, but as a model for us to rest in him. And then Moses received that promise, verse two. Good news came to us just as it did to them. Well, who's them? Well, that's Moses' generation. Look at verse seven. It says, even David got this promise. As he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Verse eight, Joshua got the promise. We know that. We know Jesus gave the promise from Matthew 11. But then look at verse nine. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So even today, there is the promise of the rest of God. So here's what you gotta see. God has always had this desire to give you his rest. God's desire was not that we live in a broken world like this, but sin made everything broken. You're broken because of sin. Work is broken. Family is broken. Marriage is broken. Everything's broken because of sin. But in the midst of the brokenness that will be here until God returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, there's rest for you. There's rest for you to be found in Jesus Christ. And that promise still stands. He says in verse three and six and nine, there remains a rest for the people of God. It's available for you right now as you choose to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and learn from him, there's rest for you today. But the warning in verse one is, let us fear lest you miss the rest of God. What if you heard the promise of rest in this life and the next and you failed to reach it? And look at what it says in verse two. For good news has come to us. What's the good news? There's rest in the Lord that came to you. How do I know it came to you? Because it's coming to you right now. In the same way it did to them. Someone also told them of the rest of God. But listen to this tragic verse. But the message they heard did not benefit them. They didn't experience any rest in this life or in the life to come. Imagine this, the people of God delivered from Egypt, they did not experience the rest on a daily basis and they missed the rest in eternity. It had no benefit. They heard the good news, no benefit. Why? Look at it right there. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This is the key. You see, the good news has to be united with faith. Not just a hearing of the good news, not just an understanding of the good news, not even an ability to quote the good news, but at some point, in order for the good news to benefit you today and eternity, the good news must be united by faith. And we already defined faith. Faith is acting on the promises of God. True faith says, Lord, I believe what you say is true. And evidence of my belief in that is that I'm gonna choose to walk in your promises. You see, they had the same good news we got. They heard it, they saw it, but they refused to step out in obedience and therefore it had no benefit to them whatsoever. 
Now, as I have to do every time I preach Hebrews, at some point I have to stop and just say, let me be clear. Salvation, relationship with Jesus Christ, the rest that is promised is a free gift of God that cannot be earned. If you, your entire life, did everything you possibly could to get right with God, you would still fall short because you were born in sin. You are by our very nature, Ephesians 2, a child of wrath. You cannot do enough good to make yourself right with God. And so God offers you the free gift of eternal life. But he says this, for by grace you were saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. No one can boast. But the way in which you take hold of that gift is always faith. And what faith means is this. God, I see your promise and I believe it. And evidence that I believe your promise is this. I'm gonna choose to walk by faith in it. I mean, think about John 14, six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's possible for someone to say, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and yet never follow Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, you don't believe he's the life. You don't believe he's the way, and you don't believe he's the truth. You see, the evidence that you trust him is that you follow him. And we're gonna emphasize this a lot in Hebrews, particularly in Hebrews 11. I can't wait to get Hebrews 11. It's gonna be somewhere in 2023, but I can't wait to get there. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is it. Faith is it. And the reason is, is because what faith says is this. God, I believe if you say it, it's true. I believe, and I'm gonna take hold of that and walk in it because I believe in you. And then Hebrews 11 gives us all these examples of faith because he knows that we may not, not understand true faith. And listen to this. It says that Abel offered a sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Moses left the treasures of Egypt. In other words, all of our examples of faith is someone who received a promise from God and as evidence of their faith, walked in it. Exodus generation got a promise, would not step out and follow the Lord. But all of these others in Hebrews 11 got a promise and acted on that promise. Faith is not simply a mental understanding of the facts. It is loyalty and submission and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a belief that acts upon the promises of God. Listen, you are not saved by works, but saving faith always works. If there are no works of faith, there is no saving faith. In other words, works are the effect of saving faith. You don't get saved because you worked. You work because you got saved. And it's evidence that you believe in the promises of God. So the question I often ask people is this, what's the difference between your understanding of Jesus and the devil's? He saw it all, he believes it all, he knows it all. The difference is this, those who have saving faith say, I believe it and I'm gonna choose to walk with Jesus and make him the Lord of my life. 2 Corinthians 13, five says that we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Let's think about that for a minute. 
How is it that we would examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Now, this is a big, this is a big verse for right now because the whole context of Hebrews 4 is this. It's possible for you to be a church member and not have saving faith. So what's the difference? Well, saving faith acts. You see some evidence of that. And so because of that, you can have a verse like 2 Corinthians 13 saying, examine yourself. Is there any area of your life in which you're walking by faith? Is there any evidence in your life that you've, are a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about your profession or your confession or what you did in the past. Are you actually following Jesus Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? Are you striving to be close to him and to make him the boss? You should be able to examine and see some evidence of saving faith. If not, then you should be afraid. You know the reason Jesus talks so much about money? It's not because he needed money. The last three years of his life, his own ministry, he stayed in other people's houses and ate other people's food and didn't own anything, didn't have a mortgage. I don't even know if he had a couple of pairs of clothes. He didn't need anything. He talked about money a lot because he knew that even 2,000 years ago, one of the greatest ways to determine the condition of your heart is to look at your money. And you see, here's the, here's the genius of this. is because Matthew 6, says, follow your money and you'll see the condition of your heart. And here's the reason giving is such a great example. You know what giving is? Giving is an act of faith. It's acting on the promises of God. So there are hundreds of promises in scripture about giving. You have Matthew 6, 4, which says this, one of my favorites. If you give in secret, this is, this is listen to this promise. The God who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, you don't give so that others can see you because then you've got your reward. But if you just give faithfully where only God sees it, listen to this promise. Do you, do you believe God or not? Here's his promise. The God who sees your giving will reward you. Period. That's a promise of God. You have Luke 6, 39, which says give and it will be given unto you. It even says this, according to the measure you give, that same measurement will be used to give back to you. Then I think of a promise like Psalm 37, 26, which says this, God blesses the children of the generous. I could give you a hundred promises like that. Just promises that basically say, if you give, God will bless you. Now here's the question. Do you believe that? It's one thing to say, yes, I know I should give. It's another thing to say, I actually believe the promises of God. And because I believe the promises of God, I'm going to show evidence of that belief by giving. Now listen, I'm gonna say this to you because I'm your pastor and I'm supposed to. It's my role before God. I will stand before God and give an account. I'm gonna say it to you because the word of God says it. I'm also gonna say it to you because we're significantly over budget and I don't need your money. And I'm not on commission. I don't need your money but I do care about your heart. I am deeply concerned about someone who claims to be a believer, but cannot trust God with their finances. Now, I think this is a big deal. And the reason I believe in a first fruits offering, and what I mean by that is, you don't give Jesus the $15 you have left over at the end of the month, like Jesus needs your leftovers. You take your check and you give the first portion of that check to the ministry of the church because what you're saying is this, God, I don't know how this all works out, but I believe the promise. I believe it. I believe it so much that I'm gonna walk in it. 
The righteous are those who walk by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Are there any areas of your life in which you're demonstrating that you believe the promises of God? I believe giving is like the first way in which we say, God, I don't get it, but I believe it. And I just, I could stand here all day and give you testimony of how Andrew and I have seen God in our lives continually bless us as we have given above and beyond. Why? Because I want the reward. I'm just telling you, I want all the reward God's got. And I don't even know what it means by reward, but I want it. I want it. Like, I don't want to miss anything. And I know this. God rewards those who give. So we're going to give because we believe in the reward. It's just, it's just walking by faith. And really every area of our life is like that. That's what faith in action looks like. And so when we say to you, our mission is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus, what we're saying is this. We want you to believe the gospel and rearrange your life accordingly. It used to be this phrase that went around a lot. I don't hear it much anymore. Brother Bill, you certainly have heard this a thousand times. Where people used to say, well, you know, I, I received Jesus as Savior when I was five, but not till Lord when I was 15. That just doesn't work. That's not the gospel. Now, certainly you come to understand more of Jesus the older you get, but here's what the gospel is. The gospel is receiving Jesus' invitation to follow him. You say, well, that's work salvation. No, it's not. The reason you're following him is because you believe what he says is true. Do you know, this is how Jesus presented the gospel. Two words, follow me. There's no prayer. There's no, like, you don't go to the back of the book and sign your name and like, you just follow me. Because the only reason you would ever follow Jesus is because you believe that he actually was the life and you wanted life. So you follow Jesus. You believed that he was the only way, so you left everything and you followed him because you believed he was the way. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is what it means to be a Christian. You say, Lord, I believe that you're right. I believe your promise is true. And I don't know what the rest of my life looks like. And this is scary in some ways, but I surrender my life, everything, my family, my marriage, my finances to you. I want you to be the Lord of it. And then I'm gonna walk in a way in which I follow you day by day. That's what it means to be a believer. Because saving faith goes beyond a mental understanding into an act of obedience based upon the promises of God. And so he says this, be afraid because they heard the same good news you're hearing and it didn't benefit them at all because it did not come with faith. But verse three, those who do believe enter the rest of God. Those who make a decision to trust and follow Jesus Christ receive the rest of God. Look at the next side of that in verse 11. He says, also, not only let us fear that we would miss it, but let us be diligent to enter it. That's the, the second part of this exhortation. Be diligent to enter God's rest. That's verses six through 11. So verse six says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. What that means is this. Not all of you have entered the rest of God. Not all of you are truly saved. Since that's true, and since those people who got the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, what should you do? Well, what you should do is this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's the response. So it's still a possibility. God's got you here by his grace this morning. He's given you the invitation. Not all of you have received the rest. They missed it. So what should you do? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
Go back to the last few weeks. If you harden your heart, it leads you to greater disobedience. It leads you to fall away from the living God. So don't harden your heart. Give your life to Jesus Christ. And then it says this. Let us, verse 11, strive to enter that rest. Now that word strive seems confusing to us because we just clarified that you don't work to get saved. Well, that word strive means exactly what it sounds like. It means to work hard and to be diligent and to do your best. And it actually means to give focused attention on a task. But let me tell you how that means. So I, I have chosen to give my life to Jesus Christ and I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Now, listen, a true believer doesn't make that decision and go, I'm good. A true believer does this. Because I believe that is right, I'm gonna choose every day to walk by faith. And let me just tell you something. That takes striving and discipline. Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so God has done something in you. So all of your action is simply a, an act of faith. You're not acting to get faith, you have faith. And so your activity of giving and serving and sacrificing is because you believe what God said is true. But listen, there is a striving in that. We live the rest of our lives striving to give ourselves fully to Jesus, having to make real decisions. God, am I gonna choose to believe you today or not? What it says is this, is that the effect of our faith is effort. <laughs> real faith demonstrates itself in our effort. I'm not afraid of effort. I wanna give myself the most to that which matters most. So I'm gonna try every day to work my hardest for the kingdom of God, not because I'm trying to earn God's favor, but because I believe that serving Jesus is better. That's it. And then he ends with his final statement. Look at verses 12 and 13. I've heard these verses my whole life. You have too, if you've been in church. I never understood them really in context. But here's what he says. He says, and it honestly seems a little out of place at first. He says, the word of God is living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. I've circled all these words. Living, active, piercing. The division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Why is that verse there? Because it's saying this. We looked at the Old Testament. We saw this example. They heard the truth, but... It didn't benefit because it wasn't united in faith. They heard this example. And you're hearing it this morning. And the reason that I don't feel any need to try to manipulate you into coming to Christ, the reason we don't do 16 stanzas of just as I am, the reason is because it is the word of God that exposes you. So the reason that I am convinced that my job is not to give you seven principles for a ab more abundant life, but to give you the word of God when it's hard is because the word does the work by the spirit of God. So I trust the word's ability this morning, listen, from what we've said, to graciously expose you. Meaning, through this word, some of you might recognize that there is actually no true faith in your life. There is no areas in which you're saying, okay, I believe that promise and I'm gonna walk in it. No, as a matter of fact, there's the opposite. There's a bunch of stuff that God's calling you to do, but you're not doing that. And so God is exposing you graciously, like he did at the woman at the well. He shows you something painful about yourself, maybe even embarrassing about yourself that you don't actually know the Lord. And that's the most gracious thing he could do. 
Because this morning, he wants you to humble yourself and come to Christ. What a sad thing for you to sit in your seat and be afraid. Well, if I come to Christ, that's really going to confuse people because I've been a member here for 30 years and you go to hell because you're embarrassed of what someone thinks. As if they would be upset by that. They might have already recognized that about you. They might have seen that you're a member of the church, but there's just no real evidence of saving faith in your life. There's no areas of faith. And so this text is saying to us, the evidence of your faith is not your words, but your life of obedience, of following Jesus day by day, taking a promise and holding on to it. And saying, God, this is hard, but I believe it, and I'm going to hold on. Someday we will give an account, that last phrase before God. The account will be this, did we walk by faith? Did we trust in the word of God? So the question really this morning is, is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you submitting to him? Have you made that decision to say, Lord, whatever it means for my life, my business, my family, I give it to you. I want to follow you wherever it leads. Whatever I do, I'm going to follow you. The message today is to receive the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me if you're weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. To take his yoke upon you means to submit to his authority and understand that that's the greatest way to live. And you will do that and come to him and learn from him and you will come to experience the rest of God. The invitation is to start walking by faith because you believe that God is true and Jesus is better. Let's bear our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.